What's going on, world? This is Heavy M, a.k.a. Big Mike, and welcome to my podcast. I got something real special in store for you guys today, and that is an interview with director Sam Furstenberg. We will be discussing his film, Break Into Electric Boogaloo, an amazing cult classic that has just about turned 40 years old, and I thought this is the perfect time to talk about this movie at length. So for the next 90 minutes... We will be discussing behind the scenes as well as some fun little anecdotes. And this is a great one. You guys are really going to like this a lot. So go ahead, snuggle up, grab some snacks, get some drinks. And don't forget, this is in stereo. Sam's voice will be on the left. My voice will be on the right. So hopefully you got a good sound system or a nice pair of headphones. And without further ado, let's now enjoy my interview with director Sam Furstenberg. Well, all right, everybody, this is me, Big Mike. I'm joined today by director Sam Furstenberg. He is responsible for the American Ninja films, as well as the soon-to-be unearthed drama action film Riverbend, as well as Ninja 3, The Domination, and, of course, what we're going to talk about today in particular, Break Into Electric Boogaloo. So, if I may ask... Did you come up with that title yourself? Well, number one, thank you for having me. And I hope you and all your viewers and listeners will enjoy our talk. Thank you. And then uh, the answer to your question is no, I did not come with this name, Electric Google. When I was hired to direct the movie, the title Breaking to Electric Google was already there. I have nothing to do with the title. I see, yes, because the title is something that's lived on for many years. A lot of people will make jokes or parodies or references. Everything is too electric boogaloo. It could be, it could be anything. <laughs> of course, of course. No, there, there are many claims. You know, if you talk to, at the time with Shabadu, he had a theory where the name came from. And when you talk with Michael Chambers, the shrimp boogaloo, he has a theory where it comes from. And uh, somebody wrote an essay, an entire essay about the subject. And uh, uh, when we're done, I will send you the essay uh, that where this uh, uh, phrase came from. It has a deeper root way, way before the movie Breaking to Electric Google. That's really interesting. And, and, you know, I know that 1984 was a very big year, especially for breakdance films, not just the first and second break-in, but also Beat Street. And I believe Crush Groover was... Cru I think Crush Groover was 85, wasn't it? Or 84? I don't remember, but there were few breakdance movies being made at the same time by different companies. Yeah, and it's if it's not my uh, mistake, I believe they were rushing, the Canon group, was rushing to get the first breakdance movie out. Like, they had to beat Beat Street as uh, what I understood. Yeah, you're correct. That's my memory. I did not direct the first breaking movie, but you're absolutely right. And I know it because at the time I directed the movie Ninja 3 The Domination. And Lucinda Dickey was the star of Ninja 3 The Domination. They liked her and they recruited her for the movie Breaking. But they were so in rush to get it out that despite the fact that Ninja 3 was filmed earlier, the movie Breaking came before Ninja 3 The Domination. How, how, how strongly they wanted it out before everybody, any other movie. 
You know, that's interesting that you say that because I was going to ask. Um, I didn't even know this about the Cannon Group until I watched a few documentaries. But, you know, they were known for cranking out like 15, 20 films a year. I mean, just a machine. So I thought to myself, I know that the first break in, like you said, it was, you know, very quickly rushed into production in early 1984. I thought to myself, how did Lucinda Dickey in particular have a chance to be in three films all in one year? Because Breakin came out in May of 84. Ninja 3 The Domination was September of 84. And then Breakin 2 was December of 84. I mean, that's already a strain in the way that, like I said, I know that their rapid fire production schedule is. I thought to myself, how did this woman make all three films in the same time? So, so the events, the sequence of events was differently. Uh, Ninja 3 was already in the can. Oh. It was shot before, you know, it was filmed a year before. It right. was already in the can. She jumped into uh, uh, breaking. They cranked it very fast. And because it was such a huge, huge, tremendous success, the company wanted the sequel immediately. So she re was recruited to do the sequel. <laughs> so actually, she, it was not... In between, they released Ninja 3 The Domination, which was already ready and finished and ready for distribution. Now, how did you feel as a director taking over from another, you know, film that already had its foundations laid, you know, because Joel Silberg directed the first break-in and then you came along just directly after. How did that feel to basically, you know, pick up the slack from, you know, the predecessor kind of way? <laughs> well, then I was already the, the sequel director because I directed Revenge of the Ninja, which was a sequel to the movie Enter the Ninja. So, I know, I came in. Uh, here in the same case, number one, I knew Joel Silver. I knew it. I don't have any idea why he didn't direct the second one. I don't know if something happened between him and the company. I don't, I don't know why they didn't hire him just to keep going. In any case, uh, they recruited me and this, and I realized immediately that this, this, the script was already in work when they re, uh, recruited me. I joined the writers, but it they were already working, the two writers. And I realized immediately that this, just like in Revenge of the Ninja, Breaking 2, the story is not a direct continuation of the, of the movie Breaking, except the three characters will continue and, and, and will be... But it's a whole new story that has its own merit and its own. So, I, I, you know, I'm a director. It, it's not. Uh, I, I don't have feeling about directing a sequence. Uh, as, uh, I'm sorry, directing a sequel versus directing an original. It doesn't matter to me. I I get a script. I work on a script, and I direct a movie. Uh, I was delighted because I, I love music and I love musicals and I love <laughs> So I was delighted to, to direct a, a, a musical rather than an action violent movie and non-violent non musical. Yes, very, very much so. I can, I can completely see that because, uh, like I said, when I had first seen Breaking 2, the tone and everything, it was... It wasn't like a complete branching continuation, like a full-on part two. Like, everything's different. It's like, at least, for example, 
from the way it seemed in the first break in film, like Kelly was a struggling, you know, jazz dancer and working at that, uh, that burger joint. And now she finally got a connection with James, you know, Christopher McDonald's character. And then she finally got into being with a crowd that she didn't think she'd fit in with. And then in the end, they're all one unit. There's no real difference. And then it's like in the second one, right at, right after your directing credit hits the screen, we see the house from Rocky Four as well, when she pulls up and it's like, wait, Kelly doesn't drive that busted up Beetle anymore. She's got a nice car. Wait, she's at, she's rich. Her parents are rich. What, what is What are we doing here? And then it's like, wait, I thought that the thing James said at the uh one of the moments in the first break in is da- street dancing belongs in the streets it won't get you to broadway and she says you know well we'll never know that if we don't give it a chance and then by the end of the movie they dance you know they have their big thing after they impress the judges and then but at the same time i thought to myself this is such a retcon but if you dig a little deeper it all falls into place because for example, and this is, by the way, this is all just my assumption here. I mean, I I know I'm really going on long with this one. Please forgive me. Um, it seems like with the way the second break in film was, it seemed very progressive, like the first one was. You know, like James has that poster in his office that says, West Side Story is back. And, you know, you've got the prim and proper white girl dancing with the two black dancers. And what also made that film progressive was she had a gay friend, Adam, played by Phineas Newborn III, who, in the film, I'm not sure if he is in real life, who, you know, plays, again, a gay man, and he was also black. Another, uh, you know, thing of progression, especially for 40 years ago. And then it's like, if you look into the second film, Kelly is abstaining from her rich girl background, And she's doing what she wants to do, rebelling against her parents, but she's doing it for a good cause. While at the same time, all these characters are fighting another form of, you know, aversion, which is, uh, what's the word? Forgive me, gentrification, you know. So, in a way, both films have their strengths in overcoming the societal norm. So, forgive me if I went on a long tangent. Do Do you think that was, I guess my point is, was that by design, do you think? Or do you think this was just all a coincidence? It was not by design. Nobody was sitting there and saying, wow, let's make a progressive movie. Let's make a movie about social justice. It was not like, a, a, let's make a preaching movie with a big message. Not. Along the way, the, the story was, the story in the first case, I don't know, in the breaking, I don't know. Breaking 2, as I told you, I was recruited and I joined the writing team while they were already writing. And there was no special attempt to have any message, but the two writers, Jean and Jane, both of them, they had this kind of uh, 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 philosophy about themselves. Probably the way I am like this, I'm very progressive. They were very progressive. And the whole, and 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 the plot is fighting City Hall, you know. Uh, fighting a fight for the, ju- the the justice of the neighborhood, let's put it th- this way, which is a social justice uh, metaphorically, and so th- so so 
so it happened, but it was not designed at a let's go and make a message movie about this. Uh, now, eventually I learned that Shabadu, the star of the movie, was not very happy that it was not, his intention was to make a movie with a social message specifically about uh, uh, uplifting the, the, the struggling people in the poor neighborhoods. And he felt at the end that we did not com- accomplish this mission. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I can see that I actually kind of uh, forgot about that until you just mentioned that. Because I know in the Electric Boogaloo documentary that came out about a decade ago, he's like, oh, this was a cartoonist, was this, this was that. On the surface, like I said, I can understand that. But again, like most great films... And this is a great film, by the way. If you, no problem. If you dig deeper and you look for things you never noticed before, just like how I made that message about gentrification, you know, there's something underlying that might not have been there before. Like you telling me that it might not have been a direct, you know, uh, thing of social justice as it's evolved and as we've seen like I said, with lots of films, depending on what kind it is, you can make your own connections. And I'm glad that this film, despite the fact that, yeah, it doesn't have that gritty, raw nature that the first one did. But let's be honest really quick about the first one. The first one's not as gritty as it could have been. I mean, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable with Franco trying to, you know, force a, force himself on Kelly whenever they have their dance scene. And, uh, you know, you have the gatekeepers, essentially, with Franco and the the dance judges, you know, the one that Peter Bromelow played and stuff like that. You, you got that kind of stuff, but even some of the dialogue, come on, like, it's not that gritty, you know, narrow-minded stuff, shirts. I mean, they really were aiming for the PG rating. And then again, so was the second one, obviously. But, um, yeah, still, I just, I don't know, like, I, I, I know that may he rest in peace, you know, Adolfo. Um, I do remember during the pandemic, you guys all had a big Zoom interview uh, with Yahoo Entertainment. And I think at that point, six years later, from what I recall, he not only apologized to you, but he also finally took it in a little bit more rather than taking it at face value. That's just my assumption. So what happened... First of all, let's remember, this was a commercial endeavor. It's, this company, Canon Film, was not uh, a company to make movies for art's sake or for uh, any other sake, rather only to make money. That's what the, was, this was the company. Of course, it was a Hollywood company that wants to make profit, make movies that make profit. So it is a commercial movie within the work frame of a Hollywood type of movie, mainstream Hollywood, obviously. And it's like, and as you say, underneath, it pushed a little bit of some idea. If people want to look into it, they can see it. If they don't, if they just want to see dancing, fine, they will only see dancing so they can, uh, but still there, there is a layer in the movies that even if you, as an audience, even if you just came to see dancing, it can seep in even without you, even if you don't want subconsciously it will it will get into you. And then you're right, Shabadu Adolfo, he 
he disagreed with the concept of this movie eventually because he was working he made the movie and he believed he wanted the second movie to be very gritty very about neighborhood and so so and he expressed it to me when he came to do when we did together the commentary soundtrack we, we did on the, on the blu-ray Shabado and myself we did together uh, and when he walked into the studio the day of the recording he said Sam we're going to do it but I want you to know I'm going to talk about it I'm I'm not happy with this movie I never was happy etc then we did the Yahoo again together all of us together and at this Yahoo and I you know at, at, at the time of recording of the recording of the uh, uh, commentary track I, I told him you're entitled to your opinion you can express it no problem when we did the Yahoo it was a little bit more confrontational and at that point I told him listen Shabadu you have your opinion it's fine you wanted to do whatever you wanted to do and it did not accomplish it fine but the movie was a big success and it it carried this little message in a different way in a in a colorful way and you cannot argue with success the audience have said this the audience have said what they wanted to say we love this movie and we are we are accepting this movie and you cannot accept you did something you know i did the company did and you did as a dancer as a lead actor you did something you accomplished something that the audience are telling you it's good it's nice we like it and you know he didn't say anywhere three days later he sent me an email i think you're right you cannot argue with success and the audience is the final judge not us the final judge is the audience and the most surprise to me was let me tell you here anecdote the most surprising anecdote he, uh, Shabadu had a, a, fa- a, fa- a page on Facebook and it you know there is this uh, whatever the, the picture and the little portrait picture yeah and and the background picture in the other after he sent me the email he changed the background picture and it is the picture of him and Lucinda and me talking to them directing them and I was very surprised that he changed it as a gesture I don't know what I don't know I never asked him and too soon after that he sadly enough he died uh, he's very sad but he changed this picture the background picture and I was surprised well my final question concerning him is this you know because you know like he said you know the movie was a cartoon whatever you know he had those thoughts and then you know right at right up until the end thankfully you know changed his ways on the set if you can recall did he or anyone else seem or feel like while the production was going like wow this feels different this doesn't feel like what we did <laughs> funnily enough to say it because it's canon this doesn't feel like what we did a few months ago you know because they were so quick like this is going to turn out way different like here we are wearing pastel costumes i'm assuming and look at all these hundreds and hundreds of extras did they even have any of the cast not just you know adolfo did anyone ever feel like this is not going to be like the first one adolfo shabadu obviously he was the leader of the dancers he's the lead not only the lead character he was the lead in the in this world of all the dancers on the set 
He was the leader, everybody was looking up to him, and, uh, uh, you know, there was a choreographer, Billy Goodman, but st- they worked together, Billy and, uh, and Shabadu, but Shabadu was the leader of the dancing troupe, and he was the final authority on dance. And uh, the movie was very colorful, very fluorescent uh, colors, and this was my intention, not comparing it to, to the other movie, to the first movie. Now, I must, you know, confess here and, and, or, or inform the, the listeners, the viewers, that the director is very busy on the set all the time. I do not interact with the people in the back, you know. The, when the actors are going and sitting in, in, in their caravans or they go and they have time in between, I'm not with them. I'm always, the director is preparing, he's working, he's on the set all the time. So I don't know. Many times in many this movie and other movie, I hear background stories, stories that happened not on the set in front of the camera, but back there in the rooms and in there. And I, I, I was not aware of them. I, only years later, I learned about the relationship between actors, uh, the way they prepare. So I don't know if they had a different feeling or not. We were all concentrated. He was uh, Shabadu, Lucinda. Michael Shrimp were all concentrated, giving 100%. And, uh, and there was the, the entire troop. You know, they, they, were the only one, they were not the only one. There were the other, the young kids, the children, the girls, the ladies, the dancers. Everybody was enthusiastic. Uh, in light of the success of the, first, of the first movie, everybody was enthusiastic. And there were always crowd and people coming to watch them because by then they were already stars. In, within the world of hip-hop, within the world of... Uh, so I, I don't know uh, the answer to your question. I don't know if there was a feeling of something different. I know that me and my crew, camera, technical crew, and Billy Goodman that was not involved in the first movie, the choreographer, who were all full force going ahead with enthusiasm to achieve uh, this movie, to to accomplish the task of making another great movie. That That's... No, I got you. I was just curious to know because, like, for example, another infamous canon film was Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. And I remember reading John Cryer telling Christopher Reeve at the time during production, he even knew, he said, this is not going to work. Like, this isn't going to be great because they they knew of the famous canon cost-cutting measures and all that jazz. So I was just kind of wondering, like, if, you know anybody else like i said like adolfo at the time was like like hey you know we're not really on the streets as much you know we have all this colorful stuff we got these you know costumes and dance and all this fun stuff you know that's like 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 beyond dance you know like because you know remember like the first one had like a little bit of a ebb and flow to it like you know teaching the girl and all that stuff and building up camaraderie fusing the two and then they finally have you know the big dance number and stuff but um no, I just I was just kind of curious. No, if there were some grievances or feeling, it did not seep down to me. Gotcha. It did not reach me. Only as I told you years and years later, on the set, nothing. We were in the street, and we we you know we were uh, we were out there in Boyle Heights doing the yeah. movie authentically. Once we got to, you know, when we moved to uh, the Miracle to building, it became all cartoonish, colorful. But there is enough in the streets, 
enough in the real street, in the in the real place of the birth of hip hop on the West Coast. By all means. And um, speaking of production stuff, because I always, you know, pride myself on wanting to know, like, you know, the uh, the inner workings, as you can see with my interview. Um, it was unprecedented that these two films would be produced, edited, marketed, and released all in the same year. So, you know, the first break-in film was shot with less than a million dollars, and it was shot, from what I recall, from January to March of 84, released in May of 84, and then the production of Break-in 2, from what I understood, was shot from, like, June to August of 84, and then released in December of 84. So my thing is when they were fast tracking to make the sequel so quickly, at what point did they realize, okay, you know, here it is. It's May of 84 break-in has opened up. You know, it's, it's like number one in the box office. It's the top grossing Canon film. It's made over $54 million. I mean, for God's sake, what was Breakin' still in theaters while you guys were shooting Breakin' 2 at the same time? I don't know. But he, let I, I, I'll let you in, guys, on a secret. Not secret, yeah. on, the, on the background of what yeah. happened. Canon Film was a co production company that had relationship with MGM. Distribution deal with MGM. Since Revenge of the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja that I directed with Shokasugi was the first movie that MGM distributed, the first Canon movie that MGM distributed theatrically. Afterward, they had relationship and every movie that Canon made went directly to MGM for distribution. MGM was not happy with the quality of product that was coming down. All kind of Hercules' movies that they were shooting in Italy, very cheap, low budget, very low budget. And, and uh, then suddenly came Breaking. MGM released, was huge success. You mentioned big money. In Canon company, they were sitting like this, waiting for the money because they don't collect the money. MGM is collecting the money first from theater. Now they have to share it with, with the Canon, right? So they are waiting, they are sitting there, okay, money, money, money is not coming. MGM told Canon, we'll cross collateral. We lost money with your Hercules' movie and the other movies that you gave us, all kind of, you know, crappy movies. Time to pay back. Lost money. Now we want to recoup. So this became a big argument and fight, etc. And Canon decided to break the tie with MGM. Break, uh, breaking was a big success, and while we were working on break, filming Breaking 2, they got an interest, or they, they made a relationship with TriStar, Columbia TriStar. And it was decided, you know, I'm out, I'm just telling you the background, because director has nothing to do with all of this. <laughs> it was decided that the movie will be distributed by Tri, M, uh, Columbia TriStar. Now, the minute Canon wanted to impress uh, Colombia, maybe to move their deal from MGM to Colombia. So they were not stingy on the budget at all. We had a good budget, a good schedule, nice schedule. We could have done whatever we wanted because they wanted to impress uh, uh, 
Colombia. Uh, now we had a good schedule, eight weeks, nine weeks, days, six days shooting. But here is what happened. Another thing occurred that uh, forced the movie to be distributed in the same year. Colombia at the same time had a movie, I think it was called Supergirl. Superwoman, Supergirl, something like this. And at the time, the deal, there was such a deal in distribution that the studio could rent out theaters, rent it flat out. You know, they rent the theater and any profit that they make, the, the studio collects because they paid already the, the fees for the theaters. So they had 1,200 theaters or whatever, many theaters, pre-booked for Supergirl. And it was December, the holidays. Yeah. Meantime, we are finishing, we are filming, regardless, we are filming the uh, 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 break into Electric Boogaloo, and it moves into the, uh, uh, now, to the editing, editing. Now, the studio, TriStar, it's, when I'm saying Colombia, it's really TriStar, it was a subsidiary of Colombia. Yeah. Star, TriStar realized that the movie they have is a bomb. It's going to bomb in the theater. They or you know they do tests etc. They know it ahead of time. They open the movie, so they put pressure on us on Canon to finish Electric Boogaloo very quickly, because they had the let's say they had the theater booked for four weeks. They cannot back up out of this deal. They already paying. They paid the chains, the money ahead of time. The rental, the rental. Now they have a movie which is not performing in the theater not making money. So they put pressure on Canon to finish Electric Boogaloo very, very, as far as fast as we can. So we had, I believe, ten, eight or ten editors editing the movie around the clock all the time, and we finished the editing in two weeks. Wow. There was a chief editor, Marcus Manton, is the chief editor, but he had with him another like eight editors, sound editors, like 12 sound editor. Music was no problem because the music was already in. You already had the music. So you didn't, you don't need music editors, uh, to the composer we didn't need. And under this tremendous pressure, the editing room, the editing rooms were working around the clock shift. One editor goes to, to, to rest, the other, the next editor comes in and and I would jump between the editing rooms and uh, go home, come back. And the movie was finished in two and a half weeks, three weeks. It was ready. Uh, TriStar pulled out the Prince 1200 theaters. They pulled out the, the Prince of uh, Supergirl. They pushed in the Prince of Electric Google and therefore they saved their rental money. <laughs> Maybe all of those chain of events that I'm telling you caused it to be to have two movies, uh, original and sequel, played in the same year, which is a precedent. There is no another example in Hollywood history that two uh, that a sequel will play in the same year, will come out in the same year of the origin. So that's the story behind it, as far as I know it. And what a story it is! I mean, you know, it, it's 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 one thing to have you know, certain parts come out in the same year that are sequels, but to have the first original and sequel 
not only get released, but produced. You know, like you see the year 1984, it wasn't filmed in 83 or 82 and sat on the shelf. It was 84. Yeah, same year. Same year. But uh, the reason is this short, uh, short period of editing. Ah. Uh. Then that's that's just incredible. Now, speaking of editing, um, from what I understand and what I've seen in many trailers in particular is a moment where the characters are continuing their introductory dance and they go down the hill and they seem to walk through like a drive through like burger place and everyone does a big choreographed dance in a parking lot. And I understand that moment was deleted, even though a lot of it was shown like in promotional stills with like all three dancers doing like a sideways pose and stuff. Why was that taken out, if I may ask? Okay, uh, listen, guys, when the movie was finished, this was a big movie, a big script. And even when we were shooting, even while we were filming, additional scenes were added into the script. For instance, there is a dance with a doll, with a dance, with a... Shabadu and Shrimp, that this was added. It's not in the original story. They're revolving, uh, uh, Michael dancing around the, the ceiling was added. So what happened, and a few other things, scenes were added to the script and the script was big as it was. So we, when we finished the editing, it was, if I remember correctly, it was like two, two and a quarter hour, two 15 minutes, two, more than two hours long. And, and uh, the policy in Canon was at the time that we don't make movies more than 95 minutes, maximum 95, 98, 97, 98. That's it. No more than that. It has to do with some reasons of sales to do with the theatrical. You know, when, when people make movies which are more than two hours long, the theater is losing one screening because they cannot fit. Uh, 90 minutes is the perfect fit. 95. Same thing goes for television. A 95-minute movie fits exactly into two hours with the commercial into two hours slot. If it's bigger, it's a problem. So we had to sacrifice a few scenes here and there. I don't remember the reasons now. We're <laughs> 40 years ago, so I don't remember the exact reason. So maybe it's for, for purpose of shortening the dance, the, the numbers, because eventually they had to arrive to the miracle, you know, the, the end of this sequence, they arrive into the building. Right. We wanted, I cannot remember the reason, but this particular uh, sequence of the, uh, of the dance, they're coming down the street, they're making a left turn, camera right, uh, screen right, and they enter uh, this... Uh, food joint, it's a hamburger stand with the, with the parking lot. And they continue to dance in the parking lot. And when I saw it today again in the trailer, it actually looks very nice. <laughs> yeah. It looks very nice with a big, big group of dancers. I don't remember why we, but maybe the time constraint or some reason that we had to shorten and shorten and shorten. And, and maybe this was sacrificed. I have a feeling I know exactly where... At least the uh, the burger the burger uh, bit happened, if you will, because I know as they're dancing down the hill, you get that big crane shot, or, the, or not the crane, but like the big wide shot, like right down the hill. You can see the skyline and stuff, and then we immediately cut to the amphitheater, to the to the uh, to the park. 
Right, and then just running down the park. And then just after that, you can hear uh, Shabadoo's voice kind of dubbed in saying, "Let's dance." And then the music even kind of does like a slight jump, and we're already cutting to the group making their way to miracles with no, the, no, the crane no, shot. Like, no. no, in between there is another shot of them coming down another street. Right. That's and what I meant. This is the street that leads to the footstep. That's what I thought. Yeah, because I was like, with that voice bit in there, and then yeah, we the, with the way the music goes, and then it cuts to the shot of the the man who was on the power line and stuff, and the camera goes up, and then you can see the miracles building. I'm like, something was in here. Something had to have. It, you you could kind of tell, you know, and like there's another bit that I remembered in the film where we do a brief cut to. Uh, Shabadoo and Lucinda sitting on the floor in her apartment eating pizza and it's a very random cut like he's he's just laughing about something while eating a piece of pizza and she just kind of makes a little and then the dad comes knocking the door I'm like yeah I was like did he say something was there something cut from there so maybe maybe right as I said things had to be cut out just to to fit into this uh, this uh, 95 book in this case, they let us go a little bit longer. A little bit longer. Right, because I know the first break-in film was about 87 minutes long, and this one was 93 minutes long. Right, so they let us go over 90. <laughs> now, I got to jog your memory about just a few few little other things. Just, I've, you know, I've had a, a lot of people that I've actually reached out to. They want to know some things. So one of my friends, Jay, wants to know... What was up, and this is all in the Radiotron sequence, you know, uh, the, the the first one. What is up with that random person with the big bald-headed, like, Hellraiser mask on with the sunglasses? Who was that? Why did they keep cutting back to that? He wants to know what that was. Okay. Was not my initiative. Let me put it right away. There was a crowd, you know. crowd uh, was either hired or, or the, the crowd. I, I do not organized crowd you know there are people who their job is to organize crowd so on this scene in the radiotron when they are dancing before uh, the groups coming in and they have the confrontation uh, the crowd was there they were recruited uh, maybe the wardrobe people are checking on them to see how they are dressed if they are dressed correctly and one of them was with this crazy mask all over his head. I liked it. I said, okay, leave it. Don't, don't, don't change it. Don't ask him to take it <laughs> part of the atmosphere. I don't know. No, yeah. It will be, eventually it will be good because people will ask questions about it. Well, because you see, you see it later on at the end of the film as well when like he's standing on like the rigging with the character Michael that we briefly get to see, you know, uh, Ozone teach a little dance move to, you know, later on in the film. Um, I think it was an extra and it was his private mask. Oh, okay. I think so. Ozone, you know, Shabadoo, he would often wear a lot of his own personal clothing and, you know, even his custom-made, you know, tusk earrings and stuff. Um, Ice-T's S&M leather outfit. Was that his idea or what? I've always wondered that. You know, because we were... We were filming the movie in the time where it really happened. Everything was there. We, it's not a period piece. We didn't have to deal with some... Or it's not a ninja movie that you have to create a wardrobe for the people. So a lot of them... I didn't know that this Shabadoo story, I, I, I learned later that it was his own private creation and his own private... 
So, but, but what we have done what, at the time was what really happening in the street at the time. So it was current, you know, we were shooting a current movie. So some extras, some of the dancers, or as I see, if they came dress up the way they wanted, anyway, it fitted the movie because we were doing a current movie. We were doing a movie about the same year that we are talking about. So there was no problem. I have no idea if, if uh, Ice-T was there only two days, you know, it was a very short uh, time on the, on the set. So maybe he came with it, probably, not maybe, I'm, I'm almost sure that he came with his own stuff and that's the way he wanted to perform. And the uh, Shabadu wardrobe, I didn't know only later when he told the story. I didn't know that it was his creation and his... Uh, you know. now so I'm sure that same, the same is right for uh, Ice-T. Now that brings me to a really big question now, because again, we know that you guys were working under a tight, you know, uh, production schedule. You know, not only were you guys beating Beat Street, you guys, now Canon's, you know, from what you told me, now they're trying to recoup the payback they had to give to MGM. So they're really banking on this and TriStar gave them the bigger budget. Was the production of this film, was it like, given and treated like a normal production like you know what i mean is uh did you guys actually have like a proper amount of production assistance did you guys actually have a decent craft service was it just mcdonald's or was it just pizza like you know what i mean like did you guys get like significant treatment that you didn't feel like oh my gosh we feel like we're being so lowball that everybody has to share one porta potty you know no not at all this was really a decent budget it's not a studio movie. <laughs> we are not, uh, you know, we are not talking about a major studio, one of the big ones. It's not a Universal or Warner Brother production where they have a huge, tremendous budget and uh, long schedule. It's not what, but in terms of independent, low budget company, it was, I don't want to use, to use the word lavish, but it was sufficient. I, as a director, because eventually if there is there is squeezing of budget the directors will feel it you can only have so many extras uh, or as you mentioned food which is not necessarily the director but no it was a very luxurious uh, schedule and uh, three units you know two and a half shooting units we have two full units and another unit that did uh, that uh, used, that went out and did all kind of montage, you know, the opening montage and other stuff. So it, there was no problem and no 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 shorting us, <laughs> not in food, not in equipment, uh, no extras. Uh, yeah, the final scene, I, I two thousand to three hundred extras on the streets. Then uh, there was no problem and not in schedule, of course. Within the restraints, constraints of low budget company, of uh, independent company. And as I said, we added scene, you know, like suddenly we wanted to do the revolving room, him dancing on the ceiling. So we had to bring all the special equipment and another camera, special camera and another uh, cameraman. It's done with an aerial camera, the cameras that they use in aerial shooting to do the revolving room and other stuff. I never was under uh, pressure to cut or not to do something. Or, uh, in the contrary, they wanted it to look good. The company wanted this movie to look good. I understand. Yeah, because, you know, I'm still getting, you know, my feet wet when it comes to learning about what it was to work on a Canon set, you know, because I know some of the things I've worked on, 
it'll take 10 hours just to get like a five minute scene. So I thought to myself, if you've got a team of like eight editors, people are working around the clock. It's a well-oiled machine. Did you guys not have time to do a bunch of takes? Did you guys do like, like one to five? Did you have, you know, uh, were you shooting like two or three whole scenes like in one day, you know, or just things like, you know, like things like that. Like I wondered that. Uh, Mike, on a set, things are measured by what they call setups. How many setups a day? Setup is moving the camera. You're shooting this way, it's setup number one. Moving this way, setup number two. Moving the camera again, setup number three. In a studio movie, in a big, huge budget movie, in a studio, they might have eight setups, four setups a day. That's it. They take the time. We, in a low budget production, we are doing between... 20 in a bad day to 35 setups in a good day. We move fast. We don't have the luxury that big, huge production combined. And we, in low budget, we work 12 hours, not eight hours like a studio movie, unionized studio movie. So we work 12 hours. We move, move, move. We have the one hour break. Everybody rest back to the set until, until we fulfill the 12 hours uh, working day. And, and, and the, the, the crew, camera, lighting, they have to move fast. But uh, usually we don't jump for one, two scenes, two different scenes at two different locations, two different cities in one day. Unless it's a very simple scene. You know, the, there is a scene that Shabadu is talking with Byron on the hill. This is simple. You go in, out, outdoor, no lighting. We finish it between breakfast and lunch. After lunch, we go to another scene. So some scenes are very simple. Lucinda and Shabadu walking by the lake and talking. That's a simple, simple scene. One or two different shots and it's done. It's covered. So we move to something else. But once it comes to complex uh, dancing, uh, we might be two, three days sitting on the same scene. But we have to move fast. So, <laughs> so this is the answer. To, this is our world of uh, low-budget independent movie making. We moved pretty fast, but you know, there was it was okay. The crews were big, the camera crew stuff, big electrical crew, big grip crew, so they can move fast. And and we are we adapted. We know we are talking about the scene and we are already talking about the next if we have to move to the next room, we already explaining the electricians what will happen in the next room. So while we are filming here, they are already on the other location room preparing the lighting. Things you see where you wherever you can fasten move 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 faster forward <laughs> with, uh, with the or we use two three cameras to finish quickly the cup what we call the coverage we might do the medium shot and the close-up together with two cameramen shooting at the same time all of this to save time and and move faster that's incredible wow i would have never imagined you guys had that many setups i mean like running at once, like, you know, I'm thinking to myself, if it's a scene with, you know, for example, like Ozone and, uh, you know, uh, Harry Caesar's character, the, the, or Byron, you know, with them talking, it's like, okay, if we just got them to, we can also probably shoot at the same time, Lucinda Dickey and Michael Chambers when they're walking at the lake as well, asking not, not for nece- advice. Not necessarily at the same time, at oh. the same day. Right. You know, because say, yeah. the, some crew will go to the lake and they prepare the truck and they will move the, the trucks, you know, the, 
so on the same day. Right, that's what I meant to say, yeah. <laughs> a second unit, there are there is a parallel shooting. You know, let's say the montage of collecting the money. I was I did not do the you know direct the main director will not waste it waste will not spend this time doing a montage of collecting money. So we send the second unit parallel at the same time while we are doing something else. We have another cameraman. Uh, in this in this instant, it was a camera woman. She went out with a crew, with a bunch of kids, extras, uh, and maybe she was directing it. Maybe there was a second unit. I don't remember. But this was done parallel while we were doing uh, scenes with the main actors, and and parallel they did the montage. Two or three days, they shot the montage of collecting the money with the car wash, etc. I see why Canon hired you. <laughs> Very efficient. That's uh, that's incredible. So just quick, quick little points that uh, I want to ask. Um, can you remember what your favorite thing to shoot was in this film? Uh, listen, the highlight was definitely the end scene. Definitely. 3,000 extras. Exciting. One number after the other, dance numbers, one after the other, culminating with the song, with the the singer singing on the stage. So I, I, I like challenges. In this case, I like music, I like color, I like uh, a lot of... Uh, and to control vast stuff. I like David Lean. I like the movies of David Lean. Big, huge movies. And, and this was... This was challenge. This was, and we were there like five days. You know, this was not a one-day shot. Oh my! Yeah, it was going on and on. You know, and and you have to calculate. You know, those extras. If you have two or three thousand extras, they are not paid extras. They come because they know about the filming. Right. And they dwindle during the day, so you have to be clever and careful. First, get the big shots with all the extras from from the front, from the back. And knowing that they will go away by after lunch, c- coming in. But this was interesting. I liked very much also the scene that they're dancing on top of the tractors. The, uh, they're coming in and uh, the, the, the dancing of the, of the ceiling, dancing in the ceiling was a technical challenge. It was a directorial technical challenge to resolve the problem and to, to make it work. So... Well, I was happy. I saw it. Uh, I saw when I <laughs> years earlier. I saw Fred Astaire doing it. I said, "Wow, now I am doing it." <laughs> you know, in the step in the step of Fred Astaire, I'm happy. I'm proud. <laughs> you know, what's kind of interesting to me about that gimbal room is uh, right after you guys would use it, it would also be famously used later on in the year with a Nightmare on Elm Street. And what I've always found interesting is Sandy Lipton, who plays the judge in this film, she was working at the same time on A Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> and she plays Glenn's mom, you know, Johnny Depp's first role. And she is actually the one, if you remember in that film, who opens up the door to seeing the blood coming down from the ceiling <laughs> from that moment. So It's nice that you make all those connections. I didn't know. To to. to th- to think of that, to think that this gimbal room in 1950, when they made Royal Wedding, would be used 34 years later with Breakin' 2, and then it's like, Breakin' 2 is finished, and it's like, 
Wes Craven's crew is basically like, hey, we need to borrow that from you guys. We're trying to make a horror movie. And it's like, no, we're just going to... The way it happened, Mike, was that this scene, as I mentioned earlier, was not in the script. One day, Menachem Golan, the head of the company, the head of current company, calls me in lunchtime during shooting. And he said, and he, his idea was, I wanted a scene where uh, shrimp is dancing on the, on the ceiling. And of course, maybe, probably his memories from uh, Fred Astaire. The, I knew immediately how to do it, technically. I knew, I knew about Gimbal. He didn't even know. I knew about Gimbal. <laughs> now, Gimbal, we can explain, it's a huge metallic drum that the set, the room, is built inside this metallic drum, huge ram, drum, huge drum. And this drum can be rotated around, and the room, the set, which is built inside, is rotating together with this, with this metallic structure. And of course, the dancer, of course, is not dancing in the ceiling, but as the ceiling comes down, he keeps dancing. So now the ceiling is down and he's dancing on the ceiling and the cameraman is upside down. So when I present, I, I told him, okay, I know how to do it. Don't worry. We had a, of course, after the, we have a production man, uh, meeting and I told the crew, here's what we need. And they went out and they found this gimbal already somewhere in Hollywood. We did not build it from scratch for our movie. So maybe it is from original uh, Royal Wedding. I have no idea. But they brought it in. It was already, it was rented. With the whole mechanism, with the, with the wheels and the base, everything was there. Of course, the art department have added our room into the builder in the gimbal. The lighting people they hang the light because the lights have to rotate with the room together. The background in the window is rotating with the room and everything is rotating. So this is, of course, our art department, our grip department, our electric department added it to this so-called, what's called the gimbal, which was only rented. When we finished, it went back. So probably you're saying the other people, the other movies are rented it from the same rental house, not from us. So they, 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 this was the story of the mechanism. Not long ago, I found a video. There was this, somebody was standing at the side in the room in the corner, and he filmed it in a way that you can see the gimbal turning around and you can see shrimp dancing. Then you realize that he's always dancing, of course, with the gravity. But the room and the cameraman, and of course, what we need is this, what you need is a special cameraman. It's called and a special camera, the aerial camera, cameraman that does not loses his orientation with his upside down. You know, most camera operator they work always with the with the their feet on the ground, and if you put them upside down, they might lose the. But aerial cinematographers they are used to airplane going up and down. So the cameraman who came to do this was an aerial cameraman. With a special camera because he, the cameraman, goes upside down and uh, and keeps shooting. And he's he was inside the cage. I have a picture. I'll see, you will Please. see in one of the pictures. I'm talking with him and he's sitting in, inside the cage, like safety cage, so he will not fall from the top to the <laughs> to the bottom. Yeah, I know. Watching the scene, uh, the girl who's in the wide shots is, you know, it's, it's a stunt actress, and she's constantly putting her hands on her head, and that's obviously because her blood's draining. So it's not just her going like, "Oh, it's ow," <laughs> and the hair. Okay, the one thing that 
I don't want to say invented, the one thing that we introduced, because Fred Astaire is, is, is dancing all the time yeah. on the ceiling. What I wanted, I asked the crew, I told them, I want to see when, Shab, when uh, Shrimp is on, dancing on the ceiling, I want to see the, the uh, whatever her name, to come in through the door. Of course, you have to film it upside down. She has to come up in the door where, where she is upside down and he's dancing. So it's done with, a, with a, all kinds of editing tricks. She, come, she walks in when she door only. The stunt woman that you see, I think she's holding in her, her hand so the hair, her hair will not go reverse. You understand? That Because makes she's more upside, sense. She's up there on the ceiling, on the physical ceiling. While he's dancing on the physical floor, which is the ceiling, and the door is up there. And she's harnessed to the wall, so she will not fall. And the hair were going all the time. So she, that's why it's not the blood, it's the hair. Oh, I, I thought it was because she was upside down. And I've, I've actually seen the video you're talking about. It was uploaded by someone named Jim Doyle. He was one of the groups. Yes, um... I know that the song that was featured in the video, it's a different song because in the film, it's Mark Scott's I Don't Want to Come Down. But the song that was used on the set, I don't know who it is, but it was a, it was a song called Dancing on the Ceiling, but it was not Lionel Richie's Dancing on the Ceiling. Yeah, yeah, because the, the song was not... Be, you know, we had all the songs when we were in pre-production. Before we started filming, we had all the songs. Yeah. But because this scene was a new scene introduced, uh, introduced in the middle of production, they had to find the song. The song was not ready contractual yet. So we used uh, temporary music to, to, to dance. And the final song with all the licensing and the legal... And the, the, we had a, uh, our uh, uh, pro, uh, music producer was Ollie, Ollie Brown. From the, from the duo, from some famous duo. Ollie and Jerry. Ollie and Jerry. Ollie Brown was the musical production. So maybe he had to take the music. Uh, he was not on the set all the time. He didn't need to be on the set. So maybe he had to take the new song into prod production and add some uh, musical background. I don't, whatever. Anyway, the answer is that we use the temporary music to shoot the scene. I got you. And it's... It's it's a remarkable scene and watching that footage from Jim Doyle and then seeing, you know, like everything around the stage in the gimbal is so dark. And then on one side, you have all these floodlights in there in the in the room that the art department put. And then you watch the scene back. You're like, it literally looks like proper outdoor lighting. I mean, it's it's remarkable. You would never in a million years you know, think like, wow, this has such heavy, heavy studio lighting. I mean, it looks, it still holds up. Even after 40 years, I, I would argue it is the film's most famous moment. I mean, it is. It is. Everybody it's it's remarkable. Uh, uh, okay, this is the wizardry of the lighting people, the camera, the camera, the cinematographer, the lighting. Yeah. But the most important, the most impressive from a technical point of view that the lights, let's say there are lights in the window, lights come, everything has to, the entire light structure or setup has to rotate together with the gimbal. So the lights are set, attached to the gimbal and they rotate together and the cable and 
think about the, the, the technical challenge in it, that everything and the rotating is done by hand. You know? <laughs> it's, it's a big, huge wheel sitting on, on, on smaller wheels that can rotate on place like a Ferris wheel kind of uh, situation. That's incredible. And oh. he's dancing and I'm shouting the directing directions. <laughs> it's a, it took a day. It took a full day from, from morning to evening to do this thing. Of it, course, it, they, it took a few more days to build it early, before. That's, that's incredible. And it was all done with just him, himself. You know, Michael Chambers. That's Yeah, it, this was his solo. Uh, Shabadu had a solo on the roof of the Miracle. This was his solo. Uh, this is this is the proper way to do a musical. Every every star gets a solo. <laughs> you know, and it's it's funny. Um, and it, one of the other famous moments in this film that's just so talked about in the best of ways, of course, is uh, Turbo's transformation when he goes down the stairs. <laughs> Obviously, it's a stunt, man. You know, we don't. I mean, let's be honest. No one really wants to see a teenage boy tumble and hurt himself going down the, the stairs but it's it's i i don't know it seems to me like it was a happy accident because it sticks out like a sore thumb you know you got this kid who's like five foot something you know beautiful jerry curl and you know super lean and then you got this guy who's got a really short haircut much bigger and it's a full-grown man and it's 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 just great. It's it's great. I don't think anybody looks at it as a as a bad thing. I think everybody who looks at it is like, this is gold. I don't know. What what are your thoughts? <laughs> okay, listen. You know that we do not endanger the uh, our actors in action movies, especially. We don't put them in dangerous situation. The stars, uh, and whenever needed, whenever it it calls, we use stunt doubles. Even if they can perform it, sometimes an actor can do something, but uh, you cannot let an actor be injured. Or, so, the, and, and sometimes we have to do to replace them because they cannot perform it. In this case, Michael Schrimby, I think he was 17 at the time, if I'm not wrong. He had to roll down the stairs. Of course, we are not going to send him rolling down the stairs if he might break a leg or some or a hand or something. Oh. So we use a stunt double. And uh, and uh, I, I called in the office, not me, whoever, production manager called in the office and said, okay, send. I My friend, Steve Lambert, who was the stunt coordinator in all the Ninja movies, uh, actually, I called him and I said, Steve, send, you know, send me. But according to the rules, it must be a black stuntman. Uh, there are now rules in stunt in the world since then in the world of stunt that the double has to be similar. You know, you don't take a man to double a woman anymore. And so, so this, in this case, the stuntman had to be according to the rules had to be a black stuntman, and uh, they, they sent this guy. <laughs> so Steve sent him, uh, Steve Lambert sent him to to do this uh, stuff. Uh, and you, and you it's know, interesting that you realize. I don't think that everybody can see this difference that you see because you're 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 very sharp. I I I can see when you're talking about the different scenes. Not everybody can see it, but uh, yes, okay, here we are. <laughs> it was done. No, and I'm glad uh, that you guys were so caring of your actors because at that time, 
1982, we won't say what film it was, but there was a well-known film where actors, unfortunately, met their end due to some careless nature by a director. Uh, also, when Shabadu is sliding down the the, uh, the flagpole, the rope, it's not him, it's a stuntman. This is dangerous, you know, it's two stories high sliding on a, on a, on a rope. He had a double just, just to do this stunt. Well, that's a good thing. I'm glad, you know, I mean, this is, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing to make a film like this. And especially when you have dancing, which is already physical, you have to make sure that your lead stars are okay because, you know, something can happen and not even just because of time, but just because caring about people, you know, you can't intentionally yeah, hurt people. someone for a movie. Safety and production. Sa but safety first. Uh, I mean, but, Mike, this is easy compared to the action movie. That's nothing. That's a, that's a child game for me because we are dealing with dangerous situations in the action movies. Helicopters, flight, falling from buildings. Very, very much more complex than that. This is beyond a blessing. Um, thank you so much, Sam. I really appreciate you, man. This is actually I have all kind of photos and, and stuff and stories that they come in. Uh, for instance, the house that we were shooting in the house, which next door was uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, and there is the picture with us and Muhammad Ali. It was the house of Mary Pickford before she moved to Hollywood. Uh, before she moved to Beverly Hills together with uh, Douglas Fairbank, this was her house. <laughs> if you can remember, did you guys, you know, only get to shoot like one or two days there, you know, because of how... Yeah, two days, maybe three, because he, he, Muhammad Ali, came every day to eat without lunch. That's <laughs> remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> so it might have been three days, I think, either two or three days, not, not more. Yeah, because of how tight the production is, like, I always assumed that all of the Radiotron scenes, for example, like whenever the, you know, the one group is against the other one was shot all together. You guys have more of than course, one day? Of course, we don't move locations. Once we are in location, so right. the Mary Pickford house, you see Lucinda is arriving and the father, she talks with the father and the mother in the tennis court. And then we moved inside. We do the scene of the the, the dinner when the Shabadu and Shrimp arrive to, to eat dinner in the house. All in in this one together in either two or three days. And then Muhammad Ali came to see what's happening here. <laughs> he started to talk with the people, with the crew. He he, he enjoyed it. That's incredible. Yeah, and I know uh, from what I was told, like even the the hospital scene, like with the dancers, like. The girls were like flown in or something like that, and they just shot their stuff and left right away. Well, the the hospital is in Pacoima. It was an empty hospital; was not operating hospital, and but it was used in many, many, many movies. This was like a location rental, with all the equipment and everything, mm. and non-operating hospital, one story, not not huge hospital, not a huge building, one story hospital in Pacoima. I remember. And Billy Goodman, want, Billy and, and Shabadu, they had this idea with the nurses because they have done it once in a television. Shabadu was in a television show when he was young. Not The Soul Train, another name. Mm -hmm. But kind of the same type of show, like The Soul Train. 
And in those, in this show, once they did the, the nurse's number, similar. So Billy and him, Billy had good connection with, with professional dancers in Las Vegas. Professional, professional. Uh, good looking, you know, the best of the best. <laughs> so they, every night they performed. So they flew in in the morning, they arrived early in the morning because they are professional dancers. Billy showed them whatever he wanted and they, they understood in five minutes what they want. We spent like two or three or four hours shooting the sequence with the nurses. In the afternoon, they had to fly back to Las Vegas because they have to work. They probably performed in Jubilee or something. <laughs> yeah, one of those, yeah. But they were very professional, top professional dancers, yeah. That's that's just remarkable. You know, this is, this whole time, you know, hearing these stories, it's, it's incredible to think in the, 95 minute long film of this and in it's now four decades 40th anniversary it's amazing to see that it's held up for so long and it still keeps getting talked about reevaluated reexamined the love and the spirit has not faded at all like people connect to this movie on a very personal level you know i remember one of my friends i showed this to they said, if only gangs really would solve their problems through dance, you know, because there's that big, you know, the combat sequence, if you will, you know, with the nunchucks and stuff. If only they would solve their fights with just non-physical violence just through dance, you know, it would be kind of a nice world, a better world to live in, you know, to solve absolutely, your problems. Absolutely, absolutely. But we are we are in the fairyland of movie making. Yeah, I know. The fairyland <laughs> of... Uh, within the realm of movie making and 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 it's a fantasy but it has a, it has some kind of a metaphorical meaning that a thing can be resolved in general it's a, in the yeah. hollywood movies you know things will be good at the end things will be resolved and and uh, and yes a, a youthful hopeful type of a story indeed you you're absolutely right how yeah, do you... But but, uh, uh, but Mike, I want to stress to to elaborate on your point. Neither did I or anybody else around me working and making this movie believed or dreamed or could have dreamed at the time that 40 years later we will be sitting here and talking about this movie. There will be a, a like a cult following around the movie in a week from today. The New Beverly Cinema, the theater of uh, Quentin Tarantino, is, is having a midnight screening, anniversary screening for this movie from 40 years ago. And, and, and the movie has followers and, and, and uh, collectors. There is this, we have this one guy, uh, Andy Egan. He's the biggest collector of memorabilia from Breaking to Electric Boogaloo. Uh, you know, it is interesting. Um, I know that TriStar was the distributor and studio um, of, of the Breaking 2. But yeah, I remember the DVD that I used to have, it was put out by MGM as well. Okay. The conclusion of my story, remember the story with the, with the <laughs> feud between the two companies? They made up. Afterward, after a while, I don't remember how long, they came back together, Canon and... and uh, MGM and the rest of the movie, 
they have decided at some point that they will distribute their own movie after Electric Will. The Canon will create a domestic distribution company. Domest domestic dis distribution is very, very difficult and, and complex and sophisticated. There are regions, there are six regions, Canada and, and within the US and, and, and you need office in every region. It's very complicated and costly. Yeah. The studios can do it. And that's why they are the distributors of most of the movies, either they produce or they don't produce. And Canon created such a company, but failed. It, it's expensive. It was very expensive to, So they dismantled the Canon distribution company, which was after breaking to Electric Google. And they came back to uh, MGM, American Ninja and American Ninja number two are again under the, the banner of MGM. So you're right. I got it. So that's why probably the, the DVD or the Blu-ray or the DVD came out from out later on through the MGM and not through TriStar. Yeah, because if I'm not mistaken, David Picker was one of the executives of Columbia TriStar in the 80s. There was a man, I think his name was David Matalon. Oh, okay. That's who I remember used to come and visit on the set. Now, no, I'm incorrect about one thing, though. I was going to say, because I know during the big crowd scene in the finale, a lot of the extras are wearing hats that say, say Pepsi on it. And uh, I thought that was like uh, advertising or like, you know, like, like promotion. No, it might be in every movie there is a product placement. That's the one I meant to say, yeah. The, they give you like... 10,000 bottles of Pepsi for the crew to and the crowd and whatever we need. And you promise to mention them one time. Very famous in another movie that I directed with Lucinda, Ninja 3 The Domination. There was a V8 and the same story. The V8 little thing with Lucinda Dickey that she pours the V8 on herself is a product placement. And we promised to show it one time and we were creative enough to show it in the way we did. That cracks me. Very, up. very famous. That cracks me up, especially because I remember Roger Ebert, who, by the way, was a big defender of Breaking Two and loved it. Um, uh, he had said that Coca-Cola owned or was owned by Columbia TriStar or whatever, or something, something to that effect. Like Columbia had a a business agreement or whatever with, uh, yeah. And I remember he was complaining about the 1987 Schlockfest Leonard Part Six with Bill Cosby and his character is constantly advertising Coca-Cola. That had to do with the, with the product placement. That's usually, sometimes right. there is money exchange, but that's not in independent movies. In the big movies, you know, they would show Mercedes. Okay. Whatever. Uh, James Bond is, is driving Austin Martin. Maybe money is changing hands, but in the small movies, it's only play uh, product. They give the crew product, uh, in uh, Revenge of the Ninja, we had Nikes. Everybody got a Nike uh, suit, running suit. Well, I saw kangaroos. Yeah, right. And, and Kid Vitali, you, you see, in, in Kid Vitali, in one scene, he's wearing it. This is product placement. There was no money changing hands, only product. Yeah, because I remember all the kids are wearing like kangaroos and there's the shop that Kelly and her mom walk out of in Beverly Hills. I think it said kangaroos right maybe, above the marquee. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So, final question for you. Yes. With the way that the Canon Group was always two steps ahead, you know, especially with their films, was there going to be, and this is really the big one, I mean it, was there going to be 
a break in three. Were they in the production? Were they thinking about it? Were they going to get you back? All that fun stuff. Probably yes, but but uh, decisions are dictated by market demand. The market dictate usually. Sometimes there are mistakes. So Canon they they made Breaking or a huge success. You mentioned fifty million in box of etc. Breaking two as popular as it was did not make the same amount of money. Less and. They were already saturated. The market was saturated with hip-hop breaking movies. A lot of them. So probably, yes, there was a thinking about making uh, uh, breaking number three. But I'm not privy to this information. I don't sit in the offices of the heads of the companies and the decision makers. So my guess is I'm certain that the buyers from all over the world told you know, they came to Canon and they say, never mind breaking, we need more ninja movies. That's what we really need. The market is yearning. The market is, our crowd is asking for more ninja movies. So, so Canon abandoned the breaking tree and they called me in and said, listen, we need another ninja movie. You're going to the Philippines. Let's make the, a movie which is called American Ninja, which eventually was... He didn't know then, but eventually it was such a big success, huge success that is beyond comprehension for a low-budget movie. Yeah, it seems, you know, like you were telling me, like with the way the story structure was, it wasn't about the story. The story seemed, seemed from what I'm, you know, compiling here, the story and characters and plot seemed secondary. Primary was the money, the box office. That's what seemed to 100% about the business. Definitely. This is a small independent company. They have to make money. They borrow money from banks. They have to return the money to the bank. It's not... Listen, Universal, Warner Brothers, they have financial resources, which is unbelievable, with a theme park, with the merchandising. They have, a, they have very strong financial background or foundation. The small independent companies, they did not have it. They don't have theme park. They don't have merchandising out there in the marketplace. So they have to make movies that make money they have they take loans from banks they have to return the money to the bank but saying so it's not like there is no rules that say never mind the story just go and make <laughs> make movies you do in order to attract audience you need story you need a hero you need a problem you need a protagonist you need antagonist you need drama that will appeal to an audience especially you need to create sympathy and understanding in a way that audience will sympathize and identify with heroes. So they come to the theater, they go back to the neighborhood, they said, they tell the other kid, hey, go and see this movie. Not only because there are dances, because emotionally we were attached to this. The problem with action movie, dance movie, that our rule was always either action or dance movie, 45 minutes are devoted to the action or to the dance. We don't want to, to cheat the audience out of, they come to see a dance movie. So you want to see them for, to, show, to give them 45. This was my rule as a director. I, I'm going to give them 45 minutes of dance. Now you're left with only 45 minutes to develop plot and characters. 
So, of course, you make La La Land, which is two and a half hours, you have enough time to, to do dances, you have enough time to the relationship. But with, for us, within 45 minutes, now, granted, I agree, Breaking to Electric Boogaloo did not maximize, it's not high on the, on the list of movies which develop characters and develop a plot line and, and drama and conflicts. There is not enough time. In 45 minutes and you know maybe can we it could have been done better we could have done better job in writing maybe but this is the constraint the 45 minutes story storytelling almost like a short movie and they usually let you guys have you know like whatever the story is like that's it there wasn't a lot of like studio interference like the producers would like come in and say oh no you're not going to do this you're like it seemed like you know i'm assuming that they just they approved of whatever was on the list and if it's on the list that's what gets made no further questions so the advantage of working for independent and not studio is exactly what you have mentioned studios from what i know let's say especially disney especially disney they are driving the directors crazy Everything has to be approved, pre-approved. In the middle of production, they disapprove. They have to change. The, the executives are sitting on top of the director and the producers or whatever, and the writers, non-stop, every day. There's no director's vision in those Disney movies, by the way. It's just... Because, because yeah. that's exactly because of the control. The, the great thing about the independent, they don't have time and money once they send me as a director they send you as a director go and make a movie you don't hear from the office nothing go ahead and make the movie i mean of course they 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 watch the dailies they watch the and as i told you in this particular movie there are scenes added even when we were going uh the company has suggested have suggestion to add scenes but uh, that's that's as as far as we went And, you know, be careful, don't go over schedule, don't go over budget. But it, this was a nice budget. This was a few millions of dollars. It's, it was, they were like six, five, six million. There was no problem. Well, that's an absolutely incredible story. And I'm glad that you've taken this time to share these memories and these anecdotes. And this is, this, like I said, is a complete treat, especially for this 40th anniversary. I mean, I honestly feel like we've covered even beyond what the traditional commentary would offer or even documentary. And this is, as far as I'm concerned with the quality of this interview, this has been nothing short of absolutely inspirational and just super informative. I mean, now with all this newfound knowledge that I and others now have, we can continue to expand our love and appreciation for this now 40-year-old film. And it's going to continue even in another 40 years and beyond that. And yeah, I think awesome. it, it will, I assure you. This is, I assure you, for example, when you go to that Beverly screening, you're, you're going to be completely flooded with lots of love and admiration. You'll, it'll probably be just like it was 40 years ago, if not more so. And uh, I know I'll be there, of course. I, I've got to see it'll be my first time seeing. I mean, I was... Lucinda would be there. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait to see her. This is going to be... This is, this is going to be such a great night. I'm really looking forward to it. And um, 
before we completely finish and close out about this, I did want to ask you one other question. I understand one of your films that's I mentioned at the very beginning of this interview that would finally be getting unearthed in a proper way is Riverbend with Stephen James and Margaret Avery. And I understand it's being worked on and restored and there's going to be a screening in this month of February in Philadelphia? Correct. Uh, the movie Riverbend that I directed in Texas in few years later after this, 1989, is a very interesting uh, story. It was privately financed, not even independent company, but privately by, by private person uh, financed. And, and it deals with racial tension or racial discrimination in the South in the 1960 during Vietnam and civil, uh, civil rights movement. And it's an interesting movie because maybe because it was privately uh, financed and so on, the, uh, the movie played very little, and, it, and it's a controversial subject, very controversial. It, it played very little theatrically, and VHS cassettes came out, not many of them. And with the year, it diminished, it disappeared. <laughs> you know, a few copies have disappeared, so there were only very few copies left around. And the VHS was not on a higher quality, was not on a high quality of visual high quality, actually on a visual poor quality, let's put it this way. And, and then a, a, a friend of mine, his name is Michael Dennis, he runs a website which is called Real Black and, and he, he deals with preservation of a black cinema. This is a black movie. And, and he found a print, a physical print in, and he bought on eBay. He bought it. It was from South Africa, and uh, he they did a scan. He did a scan to high definition digital, and uh, then we worked together on correcting color and moving removing scratches. And there was already one screening in a film festival in Texas, in the Denton Black Film Festival in Texas last month, and next week there is another in the. Uh, Museum of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia, but eventually the, the movie will come out on a, on a Blu-ray or high definition. But the biggest news, let me tell you right now, Mike, you're the Please. first one to hear it. Last Please. night, eventually, after two years of search, he found the negative. <gasps> the cut negative he found last night. I cannot. So that means he can take the proper magnetic audio tracks and not the optical with audio the, tracks. With the, with the magnetic track, he found it. So if if there will be another scan made for uh, 4K, it will, it's going to be pristine uh, uh, transition. So it's still in the work. He just found it. We were sure that we'll never find we'll never find the original. Well, now we know it's going to be permanently saved and put into very, very good hands. Yeah, yeah. Now we know where the negative is called interpositive, internegative, where it is. It's the cut negative, the finished, color corrected and everything. I look forward to seeing that one as well. And uh, Yeah, hopefully it will be restored to pristine uh, condition, beautiful condition. And this movie, which is, uh, as, I, as I say, it's a racial and a social... Uh, Controversial subject will uh, will will have a second life, will have a new life. Hopefully, someone like Blue Underground or Arrow or 
Synapse or Vinegar Syndrome will get their hands on it, or Shout Factory, you know, they'll take good care of it. One of those. uh, uh, Real Black will work with those, and and we'll make it work. But, uh, Mike, thank you very much for this podcast, uh, or this videocast. It'll be both. It'll be all good. <laughs> it's nice that we are talking about that. I'm, I'm so happy that uh, I'm so happy that 40 years later we still have screenings. We're still talking about the movie that was done 40 years ago under independent, low-budget circumstances. And and as you know, most of the movies in the world that's natural uh, process. Most of movies are disappearing in the tunnel of time. I call it disappearing in the abyss of the. And, but here and there, some movies, 10%, 20% of movies, sustain. They, they, they stand the test of time. And um, obviously, Breaking to Electric Google did so. And, and even more so, it became one of the iconic symbols of the 80s, of the 1980s. 100%. And the phrase Electric Google became, broke all boundaries. <laughs> And, you know, just just to close out on one quick thing, I'm glad you mentioned that, by the way. One little touch. It's interesting how nowadays in the 2020s, with the advent of streaming and stuff taking over and with licensing and content being constantly removed and brought back and removed and brought back, we have got to protect our physical media even more than ever, and especially the dedication and care and love when it comes to restoring films like Riverbend. And it's nice to know that there are still people out there that actually do care about certain features like this, like interviews, commentaries, behind the scenes, deleted scenes, any little thing you can think of. And it is a shame that we're basically going backwards when it comes to home media entertainment, because it almost feels like Columbia House all over again, except instead of sending away for video cassettes like you did in the 90s, now you basically, you know, with stores like Best Buy discontinuing DVDs and Blu-rays or whatever, now we basically have to go online to order stuff. Just, and you know, it's like instead of Columbia House, now it's Amazon or eBay, you know, it's just, I'm just basically glad that a film like Riverbend and, of course, Breakin' 2 are continuing to be printed and put on physical media for people to watch and not have to deal with the constraints of streaming because it's so it's not permanent it's very flippy floppy you don't always get to keep it right you're right okay well thank you once again sam it was a pleasure having you today and uh i look forward to seeing you at the screening right Thank you guys once again for taking the time to listen to my podcast with director Sam Furstenberg. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast. And finally, as you guys have noticed, my podcast is in audio format only. So unfortunately, there will be no video going forward. It will just be a single static image with my voice as this is broadcast through RSS. But... No matter, I'm glad you guys took the time to listen and supported me and film in general. You guys are amazing. You guys take care out there. And you can find me on my socials on Facebook at BlackDynamite86 and on Instagram at BDynamite86 as well. You guys take care and don't forget... 
the cinema is the perfect arena for conflict. Talk to you guys later.